0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Debbie Russell, author of Crossing 51, not quite a memoir. While researching her family history, prosecutor Debbie Russell stumbled across her respected physician grandfather's letters during his voluntary commitment to a federal drug treatment facility in 1951, known as the Narcotic Farm. The discovery sets Russell on a journey of self-discovery whose unexpected turns unearth previously unknown information about her father, just as he is losing his battle with Parkinson's disease. She collects her experiences along the way and courageously examines Middle Ages' internal struggles while providing a blueprint for redefining oneself beyond the constraints of addiction and dysfunctional family dynamics. She spent 25 years as a county prosecutor in Minneapolis, uh, litigating numerous high-profile cases and specializing in those involving domestic and child abuse. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Nice to have you on. Thank you
1: so much, Catherine. I'm honored and thrilled to be here with you.
0: Well, great. Let's start with the title, which I guess most people or many people would start with, uh, Crossing 51, but the part of the title that says, Not Quite a Memoir. What does that mean? Well, it's yeah. part we research project,
1: I guess I would say. Um, when I wanted to tell my grandfather's story, I dove deep into addiction treatment in the 1950s. I researched the narcotics farm. I researched asthma. So, it's it's partially a memoir where I talk about my experience, but it's also my grandfather's story, and it's also a research project. So, That's where I had to go with not quite a memoir.
0: Why did you decide to do this? I mean, at what point in your life? It's middle, I I mean, this was midlife crisis or what precipitated this? Okay, now I want to go back and look at my grandfather in 1951 and why he signed himself into a uh, narcotic farm.
1: Well, Catherine, when I first uh, came across the letters, it was 2005 and just reading those letters in and of themselves, I felt there was such a compelling story to be told with those letters. So my original intent was to make them into a standalone book. Um, And then fast forward to 2015, 2016, when my dad went into hospice, I felt this urgency to try to tie up any loose ends as far as questions I had about my dad's life, about my grandfather's time there, because we we didn't talk about it. We hadn't talked about it. And so all of a sudden I was in this rush to get all of this information. And then in 2020, when I left the county attorney's office and was staring at this book project that I had kind of set as my first goal post- uh, being an assistant county attorney, I then decided I wanted to put all of these things together in one book.
0: And so, okay, this is your your memoir, your almost memoir, personal story. What what do we learn from it? What is the you know as the reader as as if we read your book, what do we? get from, what are the key, what would you say the key takeaways are from your story so that we can apply it to our own stories? We all have a story to tell and we all have secrets. And I think a a lot of those, obviously you unmet your personal secrets of your family, you unmasked in the book.
1: Exactly. And I think so many family secrets are shrouded in shame. And one of the most wonderful things that came out of, writing this book, w- was interviewing my aunt, who is my dad's youngest sister, and asking her about her memories of that time, and then and then talking more about how they just sort of buried this whole episode. Um, the file folder got shoved away in a box somewhere and wasn't talked about. And when I first approached her about the letters it was painful for her to kind of revisit that time and revisit just even thinking about what the family had gone through. But my takeaway from this entire experience has been we are stronger when we are able to share these secrets and not live in shame around things that happened in the past um, that are over and done with. And being able to just talk about them, and then move through them, and then celebrate the good things that came out of them. Because with my grandfather's story, with my dad's story, and even with my story, there was struggle, um, there were difficulties, challenges, but I think all of us came out of these challenges better off than we had been before,
0: if that makes sense. Yeah, well, um, what about in terms of you what would you say before you uncovered all of these I'm calling them family secrets things no one wanted to talk about because people were ashamed what how did would you say you defined your emotional self before all this was revealed to you what was what yeah I know you were in therapy that wasn't particularly successful um, you're estranged from your mother there are a lot of issues here so what what changed? for you during the process. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like before you knew all this stuff, something is, you know, sort of defining your emotional self, but it seems to me you don't quite know what that is.
1: Exactly. And I think what that was, was I had defined myself by how my mother defined me, which was always through a lens of not quite being what she had wanted me to be. And I I kept those two things separate throughout my career, but I I often felt that the exterior that I was showing to the world, showing to my colleagues, was sort of a facade. And inside, I felt very different. And I felt uh, unworthy. I felt not capable. (laughs) And, And it was... It's weird to feel that way on the inside when you are actually having success on the outside. I was a good, I was a good trial lawyer. Um, and I, but when you're, when you're caught up in the idea of, of the criticism that you're receiving, um, from your mother, it, it can really do a number on you. And I think for me, I didn't realize just how much that affected me until I was faced with losing my dad, because my dad was the quiet cheerleader, and he was always the supporter and always telling me it's going to be fine, you're going to be great. And I think when I was faced with losing him and thinking about life with only my mother, who had sent all these other messages that you don't realize how they Invade your soul. Um, that's when I started to realize I, I have to look at myself differently. I have to look at, I have to be the person that my dad believes I am, not the person my mother thinks I am.
0: Well, and as you're describing it, it seems to me you've become the person that you think you are, that it's balanced. You're the successful attorney, you're the success, successful writer, uh, but you're also, you feel comfortable about that yourself. You feel good about that. It's not that you're performing as in either one of these professions, I should say, but um, it's who you are, that you've come to terms with that.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's, it's the authenticity that is now it's, it's through and through, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's being okay with who I am and, and presenting that to the world And being okay with how everybody else sees me and realizing I'm not everybody's cup of tea and that's going to be okay, (laughs) I think that was part of it where I just thought, oh, I've got to act a certain way because otherwise people might not like me. And boy, you know, going around like that is incredibly debilitating. And, uh, you know, moving out of the city, moving to my own little 10-acre plot here where i just get to hang out with the birds and hang out with my dogs i i have i've found that part of me that i always had it it developed in childhood and then it kind of got shoved away in adulthood and i think the midlife crisis that i had forced me to get back and find that you know it's finding the inner child it's finding all these things that give us joy and purpose and and then being able to just turn around with this book and use it as a conduit for conversations with people about how do we do that. Here's how I did it, and you can do it too. So that's, that's kind of the message that I'm trying to convey now in this new chapter.
0: I think that most people, when there's a crisis, that there is that opportunity to do just what you did in the crisis being, well, maybe middle age, but also your father uh, dying. Um, I mean, those are two obviously very significant events, but we all have our significant events. And when you realize that you have to take the, you have to be aware though, don't you? Or I guess I should ask you that question because you can repress it. You can still continue to feel ashamed, not want to deal with all of those issues that you just described. So, one, I think your book can help people to perhaps realize, yeah, just as you said, I can do something about this. I mean, all the stuff that I haven't dealt with in my life and, and uh, take advantage of whatever crisis is sort of precipitating this change in behavior.
1: Exactly, and your point about being aware, I think that, that's the tricky part because now that I've stepped away from um, my old job, Oh my goodness, there are things that I see now clearly about the environment in which I had been working that I just didn't, I didn't pay any attention to because I didn't have the bandwidth to do that. And so part of what I'm hoping to do is just encourage these conversations where people in their workplace can, can hopefully address some of these concerns, uh, without fear of reprisal. Um, I, I struggled with that because anytime I spoke up, I didn't necessarily get good results. And, you know, it's hard then for people to want to speak up if there's a fear of, of reprisal. And my hope is that with the increased focus on mental health in the workplace, Um, that sort of came up through the pandemic, that workplaces, people in positions of leadership and management are going to be paying attention because we've got to take care of each other. And people that are in those positions to be able to offer uh, help to those that need the help, um, they've got to step up. So I, I do, I feel kind of strongly about this because the awareness it's not always easy to have that awareness. And even if you have it, to express it.
0: Well, can you give us examples of in your workplace when you were, interestingly, a prosecutor prosecuting everybody else? <laughs> and uh, it's interesting that you chose that. Not not only did you choose to be a lawyer, but the particular kind of law that you practice, let's say, is also, I think, significant. But can you give us examples of that where in the workplace you were not doing, I'm using the word congruent, you know, a uh, social work term, I guess. Nothing was really congruent. You were doing your work. You wanted to be approval, but nothing was quite right. It was a little bit off. So can you talk and what could you have done differently? Let's say if you had been more motion, you know, in touch with yourself and your feelings and your motivations.
1: Well, I actually did bring to the attention of the leadership in my office, a practice that I found abhorrent, which was the practice of handing out little trophies to prosecutors who had tried the most cases in the prior calendar year. I found that absolutely almost unethical because it it, it would reward people for taking cases to trial that maybe should not have gone to trial because it didn't, didn't matter whether you won or lost. It just mattered that you went to trial. And I felt strongly that that was inappropriate. And what happened then is I was transferred into, I was taken off my trial team um and and put on a a calendar rotation, which I had said I did not want to do. Um, it's interesting now I can look back on that and think, well, that was probably for the best. Um, there have been a lot of things in my life where in real time, I have not felt like it's what I wanted to have happen, but things outside of my control have made things happen, and then once I get through that, I feel like well. That was for the best. But I I was trying in real time to um, express what I felt were um, actions taken by leadership in my division that were uh, not necessarily in the best interests of of justice. If that I'm not sure if that answered your question, but yeah. um, no, that, that was makes one sense. thing that I did do
0: let's talk about your therapy and you decided, you know, you have sh- shared that with the world that you have been in therapy. Uh, and, uh, that's very personal. And there's still a lot of stigma attached to, I don't think quite as much as uh, being in therapy. Um, and so, and the shame is associated with it. So let's talk. I wanted to talk about your experience in therapy. Um, why you decided to get into therapy and, and what happened?
1: Well, I deciding to get into therapy, um, came right at Christmas time after an episode with my mother where it just, I, I felt like I couldn't continue to manage that relationship. And, um, I basically just went online and looked for a therapist, which I don't know that I would recommend. I think back when I was, uh, when I was looking for a therapist and I write about this in the book, I was under the impression that nobody I knew was in therapy. and So, because it wasn't anything that anybody talked about. And so, and I didn't, you know, go down the hall and ask any coworkers for recommendations. And so I basically it was like picking one out of the yellow pages for those of us that are old enough to remember the yellow pages and um, it was it was interesting because my very first session with this person i didn't I didn't get a really great feeling out of it, but I was always somebody that deferred to those in a profession different than mine. I just assumed everybody, you know, like my dentist, my doctor, my mechanic, everybody knew what they were doing. And I just sort of deferred on that. And, and I struggled with this first therapist and, and I write about that. I think I was a, probably not an easy client, but I was never pushed. I was never pushed. I just came in and I just talked about whatever I wanted to talk about. And then at the end of the session, I left and I thought, well, I don't, I'm just not understanding what I'm supposed to be getting out of any of this. Um, And so uh, what's interesting is I don't know if, if the session where she was impaired, if that had not happened, I don't know how, I don't know what sort of story I would have written, you know, but it was, it was a really remarkable incident that of course forced the termination of that relationship. And then I was at another crossroads where do I just throw in the towel and say therapy's not for me, but I felt like I had to keep, I, I needed, I needed to try again. And so that's when I found my second therapist. And um, it's been interesting because now I I know all sorts of people who are in therapy, have been in therapy, uh, their kids are in therapy. So it's a whole different environment right now where I can have these conversations with friends, um, colleagues, relatives, and share these experiences. But at the time, it was it, it felt very, um, isolating because I just, you know, I didn't tell a bunch of people that I was doing therapy. And then when these, this incident happened with my first therapist, I only told a couple people about that because it was just so kind of astonishing. So, um, Well, then you I, find, I I find out that again, everybody's
0: in therapy. And then you, but once you out yourself, <laughs> I can use that term, uh, you'll find that the whole neighborhood's in therapy or all your colleagues are in therapy and, and everybody gets, you know, it's a different situation. I think when you are in a, if you are a therapist or a social worker or a psychologist, it's, it kind of appears as the opposite, that everybody is in therapy because I think if one is doing therapy or counseling, one should also have been in therapy themselves and, um, that's pretty much, I think, the case in, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. Um, yeah, so it's but but more and more people just in general and celebrities talk about their therapy. And I, I think which I think is a really good thing. Um, so it's the the stigma, I think, is slowly disappearing.
1: Oh, I agree. And yeah. and I keep turning back to the pandemic because I do think the pandemic kind of forced the issue And, um, I think we, I, I, you'd know this better than me, but I think we're, we're in quite a shortage of, uh, mental health practitioners, which, um, you know, hopefully that will start to, uh, rectify itself over the next few years as, as more people, um, get into the field. But, um, absolutely it's, it, it, again, when I started talking about my family struggles, your, your point about outing oneself, I think the thing that I would say about outing oneself is it can be, it can feel really, really hard. But once, once I did that in terms of here are my struggles, here are the things I'm going through. It's so amazingly gratifying and, and connective to, to then realize, oh my gosh, everybody, everybody's got stuff, right? And um, I was always under the impression that everybody else had a smoothly running family with very few bumps in the road. And, you know, the book has, has really prompted such wonderful reflections on the part of my readers where they're reflecting on their own family situations and they're relating. And And I think that's, again just having those conversations, then we feel less alone. We feel less isolated in our struggles. If we can at least have a person or a few people that we can share that this is happening, this is happening to me. Oh, it's happening to you too. Oh my gosh. Then you have that camaraderie or connectedness over a similar experience.
0: And when you're in therapy, essentially, I mean, this is, uh, you are in a way in a, even in a philosophical way, I mean, you're seeking the truth and as sort of each emotional truth comes out. It's really very freeing. It really feels good. No matter how painful it is to get to that point. Um, I think one experience is a real different, even um, uh, physical change, emotional change, everything changes in, in, a, in a good way.
1: Oh, I agree. And one of the best things that my first therapist did for me um is she you know, and this was 9 months in, but she um instructed me to write a letter to my mother that would never be sent. I think this is probably a common um thing that yes. that that we do in therapy. So write that letter. And I I kind of resisted it. And um And when I when she finally said, you know, let's I I want you to do this by next week, see, it was then we had kind of the the deadline, right? And I sat there and all of a sudden five pages single spaced, but it was titled List of Grievances. And oh my gosh, Catherine, it (laughs) was that was that was a monumental event for me. Um, because I realized, and I don't put this in the book because the book is not about my mother, but having been able to do that and just get it out of my head and out of my soul and onto some paper was so liberating. And I shared it with my brother at the time, and he validated because part of some of the issues with my mother involve what I believe to have been gaslighting and gaslighting is, is really scary when you're on the receiving end, because you really think you don't, you don't have a grip on reality. And so when I wrote out my list of grievances and I shared it with my brother, he validated them. And he said, he, he remembered many of the things that I wrote down and that, I will say, therapeutically for me was huge, even though my relationship with this particular therapist did not continue long past that. Just having been able to do that was, was just really, really helpful for
0: me. Liberating and, and freeing, um, as you described it. We have so much more to talk about, but we have only a couple minutes left, so we want people to get out there, read the book, Crossing 51, not quite a memoir. And I've been talking to Debbie Russell, who's the author, author of the book. So Debbie, give us website and or websites or places to go to obviously get the book and to learn more about what you're doing.
1: Yes, thank you so much. So my website is www.debbie-russell.com. And if you go there all the ordering information for the book is right there. If you want to do it through Amazon, if you want to order it through your local bookstore, uh, you can do that. So I've got all the links right there on the homepage for uh, getting the book. And um, I've also got information about me and um, I'm working on my next book. And so, uh, yeah, I, uh, that's the place to go for all of that information.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, I appreciate it too. Thank (laughs) you so much,
0: Catherine. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.